Hi, I'm Christine. And I'm Alan. We'd like to thank you for tuning in to our discussion this week. Our hope is that we'll share some information that you will find helpful. So now we invite you to join us as we together listen listen for for the the word. word. Hi, everybody, and welcome to our podcast today. It's great to have you with us. Today we'll be talking about Luke's version of the Transfiguration, which is in Luke 9, verses 28 through 36, although in your lectionary it's going to add on additional verses to that. And so um, we may talk about that a little bit. So those additional verses that are in parentheses are 37 through 43a. So just... um, Keep that in mind, um, and we may talk, as I said, about that later. But I'm going to have Alan get us kind of started and talk about uh, Luke's version of this. Yeah, thanks. Um, as, as Christy said, we're talking about Luke's account of Jesus' transfiguration in the presence of Peter, James, and John. And, you know, as, as, we've been, as we both were preparing for this, I think the transfiguration of Jesus may be more ignored even than the ascension. Um, and, of course, part of the reason for that is that the transfiguration isn't as commonly referred to in the New Testament as the cross or the resurrection, and not even the ascension. But it's just, uh, it, it, it's not really, it doesn't play a significant role. And yet, in Luke's gospel particularly, we're going to find that uh, this is not just meant to be a liturgical transition to prepare us for Lent, mm-hmm. but it plays a rather significant role in the theology of Luke's gospel. Yeah, You know, as I've thought about the transfiguration, Transfiguration, and it is in all the synoptics, and it's 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 really a big part of Jesus's life, and mm-hmm. yet it really, as I got thinking about my own background, it was really something I wasn't that familiar with. Yeah, so, yeah. Um, and I would say that's probably true across the board. Right, right. So, moving on, um, how is Luke? unique in this situation? Well, all three synoptic gospels have the same basic sequence of events. Peter makes his confession of faith in Jesus at Caesarea Philippi. Mm -hmm. Uh, Jesus makes his first passion prediction, followed by his teaching about the cost of discipleship. Um, Jesus predicts that some of them will see the kingdom before they taste death, and then the transfiguration. That sequence of events is followed in all three Gospels. And each of the Gospels makes the connection between Jesus' prediction that some of them will see the kingdom, or in Matthew, it says the Son of Man coming in his kingdom, um, and the the event of the transfiguration. All of them make that connection. Mm -hmm. But Luke perhaps makes the connection most explicit by introducing his account with the statement that this took place about eight days after these sayings. So in other words, after he made this prediction, this is what happened. Mm -hmm. And I think that's intended to connect the prediction with the event of the transfiguration. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. Now, of course, this also sets Luke apart from the other Gospels because both Matthew and Mark say that this event happened six days later. So, uh, you know, why the six and eight is hard to say. (laughs) One one suggestion I saw was that we're going to see, I mean, you know, Peter suggests that he make dwellings for for Jesus and Moses and Elijah, and um, there may be sort of a, a, a link there with the festival of booths or Sukkot, yeah, yeah. and so the length of, of, of time of the festival might have influenced Luke. It's hard to say, really. <laughs> Calvin has fun with that, by the oh, way. Oh, I'm sure he <laughs> goes to great lengths <laughs> he, to try to figure that out. Yeah, well, make he, sure that there's no contradiction, ex- right? Exactly. He explains <laughs> that they are simply counting the days differently. Yes, of course, of course. <laughs> 
<laughs> well, how many times have I heard that? So, yeah. of course, Jesus isn't up there alone. So who is with Jesus? So Luke tells us that Jesus took with him Peter, John, and James and went up on the mountain to pray. Now, only Luke tells us that Jesus took the three disciples up on the mountain to pray. Mm-hmm. This is important. And we may remember that only Luke tells us that Jesus' vision of the heavens opened, the spirit descending to him as a dove, mm-hmm. and the heavenly voice at his baptism happened to him wow. while he was praying. And and the way you know we're, we're going to see is that Luke then says in the next verse, in verse 29, it was while he was praying mm-hmm. that his appearance was transformed. Only Luke adds that detail. And, you know, I think this really, we're beginning to see something of a pattern in Luke's gospel that that uh, these significant events in Jesus' life happen in connection with Jesus praying. Um, uh, we're going to actually, uh, not just the baptism and the transfiguration, but also even Peter's confession cons- occurs in Luke's gospel in the context of Jesus praying. So this is, this is a fairly interesting mm-hmm. theme in Luke's mm-hmm. gospel. Now, Matthew and Mark just tell us that Jesus simply took the disciples up on the mountain and all of a sudden he was transformed, transformed. and there's no connection with, they don't, they don't mm-hmm. include any reference to prayer. There's no, there's no, you know, expl- explanation. And I, I think again, perhaps what Luke is doing is that he's trying to connect the dots for the reader right. so that, you know, the, the narrative is more readily understandable as we saw with the calling of the first disciples. Mm-hmm. So it would seem that for Luke, then the disclosure of Jesus true identity and his true role, his true mission is connected mm-hmm. with prayer. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and a, a little bit more about that. Why? Why does he, does this, do you think that's some kind of reflection for um, the listeners to, to also understand that they too are connected to God through prayer? I think it has to far? do, I think it has to do with Luke's understanding of how it is that people come to recognize who Jesus is and what he's meant to do. Um, you know, we, we saw already with Mark's gospel, that's not a given mm-hmm. and right. it's not a given here either, right. but I think it has to do with, with, um, you know, uh, Luke's understanding of how people come to an understanding of, of, of who Jesus is and what he's meant to do. Yeah. Okay, and we'll, we'll we'll talk more about okay, that. Okay, so yeah. t- tell us a little more now about this transformation and and some of the interesting um, pieces about that. Yeah, uh, Luke actually is unique in the way he describes the actual transformation, and I think maybe there's a similar motive of trying to connect the dots for the reader here. He just says, while he was praying, the appearance of his face changed, and his clothes became dazzling white. In verse twenty nine. Now, um, he actually seems to be simplifying the descriptions of Matthew, who tells us that Jesus' face shone like the sun, Mm -hmm. and Mark, who tells us that his clothes became dazzling white, such as no launderer on earth could bleach them. Luke leaves all that out. Mm -hmm. He just simply says the appearance of his face changed, and his clothes became dazzling white. And uh, the word that that Luke uses for Jesus' clothes is that they became shining white or gleaming Mm -hmm. white. And the the the, the it, it's a I believe it's a participle exastraptone. It's only found here in the New Testament, and it is a cognate verb of the noun exastrapte for lightning. And there are some English translations whom say they shone like lightning. I don't think that's necessary. Um, I, I I think. Um, you know, the idea uh, here is that it's the intensity of the brightness. Mm-hmm. And so I don't know that we need to use the... But lightning sh- kind of has a, a different... Uh, 
Well, maybe a, a, so, you know, when it comes to language, words um, may originate. You know, this, this word may have originated in a context where it was connected with a flash of lightning, mm-hmm. but that doesn't mean that every use of the word right. functions that way. And so it's a matter of how does the word function and, and the context, it, it, you know, is really more, more important in, in helping us understand the meaning than the etymology. Got it. How, how the word is used is more important. Okay. And so I think, I, you know, um, linguists res- refer to the etymological, fa- uh, the, the etymological fallacy where people think that if you can explain the etymology of a word then you've explained the word well that's that's really a fallacy yeah, yeah. that makes well yeah, yeah that makes sense and yeah. it's it's very that's very interesting but i can see that being i can see see that being a problem with language right yeah, i mean absolutely. how how often even when i even think about slang words and how like my kids use words is not necessarily right. what we that's, think of as the traditional meaning. And, and then that is, that is the, that is what determines the meaning of words, how, how it's being used. Mm-hmm. And, and that's true. That's true. You know, for the new Testament, it's true for the old Testament. It's true for Latin. It's true for all languages. Right. Yeah. yeah. Very good points. And I think, <laughs> I guess I think with these ancient languages in particular, mm-hmm. the writing that we tend to superimpose this limitation. <laughs> well, and you know, I mean, the common English Bible and the NIV adopt the white like lightning translation. And I mean, I know some of the translators on the common English Bible and, you know, obviously the NIV is a very popular translation. Mm-hmm. So with all, all due apologies to those who are fans of those translations, I, I don't think that's what's going on. Right. Here. Okay. Moving on. Um, there's some folks obviously with, that appear with Jesus. Yes, and who, yes, who are indeed. they? And and this is the case in all three accounts. Of course, uh, the the next stage of the event is the appearance of Moses, Moses and Elijah. Luke says in verse thirty, suddenly they saw two men, Moses and Elijah, talking to him. Now, to some extent. The translation of the new RSV is a bit of an accommodation, I think, to Matthew mm-hmm. and Mark. Luke simply says in a literal translation, and behold, two men were talking with him who were Moses and Elijah. That's a more literal translation mm. of the Greek. Uh, um, so, um, you know, we're going we're gonna to see that, that seeing and, and appearance is going make a, make a, to be a role, it's going to be a factor in the transfiguration. But um, um, uh, that's not what Luke says at this point yet. And I think, I, I mean, I think, I know that when you're trying to go from Greek to English, you know, there's some, there's the, the conventions of English language sometimes are, are important. And, but I think here they kind of jumped the gun a little bit with the <laughs> translating it that way. Got it. And of course, you know, we discussed last year, it's an open question as to how Peter, James, and John would have recognized Moses and Elijah. And, you know, one thought occurs to me is that perhaps, I mean, they were talking, perhaps Jesus greeted them by name. Right. Exactly. Exactly. I, I'll talk later. I picked up some of our early images. And so there, and Calvin's thought is, well, there, they would have symbols that would have Mm -hmm. tied them that people could have recognized the symbols. And and guess what? That's what we see in for our benefit in the, in the, in the the images. So that's kind of interesting, but yeah, yeah, I think that would make total sense. Um, so um, we're moving on then. 
what happens next? Well, we have another one of Luke's kind of characteristic additions. They appeared in glory and were speaking of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now, again, this statement is only found in Luke's gospel. Uh, all three synoptic gospels tell us that Moses and Elijah appeared, and all three use a verb of the uh, a form of the verb ophane, which is the first aorist passive of mm-hmm. orao. In uh, Luke, it's the participle ophentes. But um, in the use of this verb, especially in the New Testament, for Jesus' post-resurrection appearances, suggests that their appearance in glory was more than just a vision, but rather they were physically present in some form. Mm-hmm. And that's that's the way that word is used mm-hmm. in the New Testament. Mm-hmm. So again, the appearance of Moses and Elijah in the context of Luke and Acts, I think also reinforces the idea that Luke wants to write the story of Jesus into the larger story of God's redemptive purpose, because obviously Moses and Elijah played a very key role in that bigger story. Right, right, right. Um, And so moving on, um, um, I I guess my question is with Moses and Elijah, why those two? Well, um, I mean, if you were going to pick any two, they would be the ones. I mean, Moses was the prophet. Right, right. And you know, Jesus is often compared to, to Well, Moses. And, and Moses said, and we'll, we'll come back to this, Moses said, God will raise up a prophet like me from among your midst. Now, there's some, some uh, variety of indicating, of identifying who that is. Some might suggest it's Samuel. Some might mm-hmm. suggest it's Elijah himself. Uh, but, uh, you know, when you, when you move forward in, in, in Jewish, you know, in Israelite history in the Hebrew Bible, I mean, the next high point really from Moses is Elijah. Mm-hmm. And so Moses and Elijah are, th- are the two. I mean, if there are two figures that you're going to point to in the, uh, in, the, in the Hebrew Bible that are servants of God right. and prophets of God, it's Moses and Elijah. I keep thinking of Elijah going up in a whirlwind as well, mm, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and the other thing is Moses met with God on the mountain. Right, right, right. <laughs> and right. so there's a little there's bit of a connection kind of, there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All yeah, right. Yeah. Um, so moving on, um, tell us about Jesus' departure. Yeah. Uh, and here only Luke, again, only Luke gives us even a hint of what Jesus was talking about with Moses and Elijah. He says they were talking about his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. And the Greek word for departure is exodus which may allude to the theme of the new redemptive work compared to the original Exodus in 2nd Isaiah. Um, if you have any familiar with 2nd Isaiah, you know that that's one of the major themes that runs throughout Isaiah 40 through 55, is that God's going to do something that makes even the original Exodus look uh, like you know basically small potatoes in comparison. Now, of all the Gospels then, Luke also makes the most, I think, direct connection between the transfiguration and the cross, and thus by implication as well, the resurrection, and we're going to see as well the ascension and and the parousia. So this is a major theme, I think, regarding the significance of the transfiguration in Luke's gospel. Not only does it demonstrate the nature of Jesus' mission, which will take him through rejection and death to his exaltation in order to fulfill the liberation from bondage that he Mm -hmm. promised in, in Nazareth, but furthermore, it provides a foretaste of Jesus' resurrected glory when he will come again in power. So, you know, cross, resurrection, 
um, um, ascension and uh, parousia are all a part. It's like it's like the transfiguration is a foretaste or a preview of all of that. So this is big stuff. It is in Luke's gospel. Definitely, this it's big, big stuff. Big stuff. Yeah, and yet. We hear about the sleepy, <laughs> the sleepy disciples up there. Yeah. So tell us about this. Yeah, and and um, again, this is still part of Luke's unique addition to the story of the of the transfiguration. It's not found in Matthew and Mark. Luke says, "Now Peter and his companions were weighed down with sleep, but since they had stayed awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him." Now I'll have to point out that uh, here the new RSV. Uh, along with a couple of others, the Common English Bible and N.T. Wright's New Testament for Everyone, depart from the rest of the English Bible tradition. And you may have a Bible that suggests that, you, you, know, you know, if you're reading your, your version of the New Testament, when you read the story of the Transfiguration, it may read that the disciples fell asleep and then they woke up. Mm-hmm. And basically the King James Version set that pattern. And you see, I mean, uh, you know, we've seen before that the King James Version exercises a long reach when it comes to the history of the English mm-hmm. Bible translations. I was shocked that even even uh, Gene Peterson's message translation mm-hmm. follows that pattern. Mm-hmm. Even the New Living Translation, and I know some of the people who participated in that one, you know, even some fairly recent, you know, translations mm-hmm. that are that are really good translations follow that same pattern. Mm. But um, the the argument that I saw that really I, I agree with is that the word for um, it, some have translated they woke up. Or here, the Nuris Free says they stayed awake. Is dia Gregoreo? Now, Gregoreo is the Greek word for, for wake up, right? And but and, and typically, when you see a compound verb like this with a preposition like dia Gregoreo, it has an intensifying function. And and the argument on the part of, of both Joel Green and Francois Bovon is that you know the the point of this passage is that although they are the point of this verb is that although they were weighed down with sleep, they resisted and they remained and they were managed to stay awake. So I think the new RSV is right here. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Common English Bible also translates it in a similar way. And um, so NT right NT yeah. right yeah. yeah and the New Testament for everyone. And yeah. so uh, and those actually I think those are the only three that I saw that actually follow this. I didn't look at the Jerusalem Bible or the New English Version, but um, um, uh, the, most of the even more recent translations, mm-hmm. New American Standard, New, New NIV, you know, English Standard Version, Christian Standard Bible, a lot of these translations um, uh, follow uh, the, the King James there. And I, I don't think that's the point because I think what Luke is trying to do is to fend off the possible objection that Peter and the others were only dreaming when they mm-hmm. saw Moses and Elijah and the transfiguration of Jesus. Mm-hmm. I think Luke wants to make it clear that what they saw was real. It was mm-hmm. not a dream. Mm-hmm. It was not a vision, and it was not a dream. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that brings so much. That makes so much uh, emphasis or, or, mm-hmm. or realness, or uh, you know. Um, <laughs> Well, it goes along Power. with that emphasis on ofte, you know, that they were seen, that yeah, the idea exactly. that they were really there. Exactly. Yeah. That they, that they're really there in body and there wasn't anything to confuse what they saw. Right. 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 Mm-hmm. Right. Right. Now, also, only Luke tells us among the synoptic gospels that the disciples saw Jesus' glory. 
mm-hmm. is doxa. And of course, we know that glory is a theme associated with the divine presence in the, in the Hebrew Bible, and it's also a theme associated with with Christ's um, resurrected um, um, nature, his resurrected existence, his ascension, his and his parousia. Now, so this this also connects Jesus' appearance with Moses and Elijah. Remember, it says that they were in glory as well. And, but it's also a theme that's interestingly taken up later in 2 Peter 1, 16-17, which speaks about the apostles as eyewitnesses to Jesus' power and coming. Mm-hmm. That's dunamis and parousia. And his majesty, megaliates, which is only used in the New Testament in 2 Peter 1, 16 there, and in Luke 9, 43, huh. which is the tail end of the passage that we're omitting today. Right. It's the tail end of the passage where Jesus restores a young man who, right. is, who is troubled. And, and, and the, the Luke says the people praised, uh, they were amazed at God's megaliotes, his, his wow. majesty. So and so the connection between glory and majesty is pretty clear there. Mm-hmm. But in, in 2 Peter 1, it goes on to say that Jesus received honor and glory from the heavenly voice. So the language again of the passage in in first in Second Peter chapter one not only clearly alludes to the transfiguration, but I think it also again points to this idea that the transfiguration is a preview of mm. Jesus' future coming yeah. in power yeah. and glory. That makes that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, and and it makes sense. It did make sense within the whole the whole um, the whole context of where we have seen from baptism this relationship between god mm-hmm. and jesus now here and then again mm-hmm. yeah it, it makes it it makes sense for luke to be drawing this picture with yeah. us mm-hmm. yeah. that makes yeah. absolute sense all right so what happens next so luke tells us that next um just as they were leaving him peter said to jesus master it is good for us to be here let us make three dwellings one for you one for moses and one for elijah not knowing what he said mm-hmm. and again only luke adds the detail that Peter blurted out this offer of making dwellings just as they, that is Moses and Elijah, were leaving Jesus. Mm -hmm. Um, Now, of course, Matthew and Mark report that Peter makes a similar offer because it is good for us to be here, as he says Mm -hmm. in in, Mm -hmm. in Luke. Um, It would seem that his offer of building a skene, which is literally a tent or a dwelling, and some see in this a possible allusion to the festival of Mm -hmm. booths or Sukkoth, was meant to keep Elijah and Moses around a bit longer. Mm -hmm. You know, the idea was that, you know, this was an amazing experience and and Peter wanted to, didn't want it to end. Right. And I think it, it has a realness about it too. It's like mm-hmm. this is real, and can I just preserve it? Right. I mean, I think, right. I Let's think just stay human. here. This I think is really cool. Very yeah. human response, yeah. Yeah. actually. This is really cool. Let's just stay just here. Stay here. Yeah, right. Yeah. Right. So now, of course, both both Luke and Mark indicate that Peter didn't know what he was saying, and part of the point of the narrative is that after all that Peter had witnessed of Jesus, even after his confession of Jesus as the Christ of God in this very chapter, Luke nine twenty, he and the others still do not truly comprehend Jesus' identity and purpose. And I think that's important here. We might not just get that from he didn't know what he was saying, uh, but um, that's part of what's going on in this passage is that this is one of the ways that Luke shows that Peter still doesn't understand Jesus. Part of it is it's buried in, in this, master, it is good for us to be here. Again, it's that word epistata, which 
you know, as I, as I've said before, in Luke's gospel, that's kind of a common term that the disciples use for Jesus. But it contrasts with curios, which is Luke calls him curios. The disciples call him master, which um, you know could be simply similar to teacher, mm-hmm. and and Luke calls him curios or Lord. And so this may be a subtle way in which Luke is trying to again reinforce the idea that. Peter really didn't know what he was talking about, and he didn't understand even what he said when he confessed Jesus is the Christ of God. Well, you know, I think again, I think this is very human. Mm -hmm. I I think even even if you acknowledge it, does that mean you fully digest it, fully understand it? I mean, this is part of why why he's up there. I think on the mountain is to try to, and even then, it's like, oh, this is this is cool, and my my brain can't wrap around what I'm a what I'm seeing, yeah, you know, yeah, I'm going to yeah. create a different narrative for right, myself out right, of it. Right. And right. absolutely. Why wouldn't you want to build and keep them there and think about, I keep thinking about this, the sense of not only awe, but also the sense of safety and the mm-hmm. sense of uh, wanting to stay. I mean, right. You know, well, and, and I, to me, it just, it kind of hit me that, wow, you know, we, we just did the uh, calling of the first disciples not long ago where Peter said, go away from me, Lord, because I'm a sinful man. Right. In, in response to his perception that Jesus, you know, was this holy presence, mm-hmm. he, he, wanted, he wanted Jesus to leave. Here, you know, <laughs> he begged to be allowed to stay right. in the presence of the holy, as it were. Right, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> I keep thinking, and of course we know, What's going to happen is the Holy's going to leave, and I think I think the end of this alludes to that is mm-hmm. is um, wh- where Jesus says, "Look, I, I'm not going to be here forever. You're going to have to have faith. You're going to do this without me." I mean, mm-hmm. I think there's a definite connection between this desperation of wanting to stay and reality that things are going to be different. Yeah, that's mm-hmm. right. That's right. Yeah. So Peter's reverie doesn't last, though, because Luke tells us that while he was saying this, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were terrified Mm -hmm. as they entered the cloud. And uh, all three synoptic gospels report the cloud and the voice, and even all three report their fear, but they report it in different places. It's kind of interesting. Uh, Mark says they were afraid to explain Peter's request to build temple, to to build uh, um, dwellings in addition to saying that he didn't know what to say. Luke says that they were afraid as they entered the cloud, which actually makes a lot of sense to me. (laughs) And Matthew says that they were afraid and fell to their knees after they heard the voice. And then only Matthew reports that Jesus reassured them not to be afraid. So it's a little bit, it's interesting how this detail gets reported differently in the different synoptic Mm -hmm. gospels. But it would seem that in Luke's account, the presence of the cloud was more frightening to them than the appearance of Moses and Elijah, or the transfer, or, the, uh-huh, or even the uh-huh. transformation of Jesus' appearance. Yeah, yeah, and I would say it's probably likely that they realized that they were in the presence of God yeah. because in the Septuagint, the cloud and note the word nephile for cloud is mentioned three times here within two verses. Yeah, I think. so yeah. Um, you know it's it's very clear that that's yeah it's like flashing neon sign you know right. cloud 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 uh, you know the, the, the in the Septuagint that's clearly associated with God's presence through the pillar of cloud and fire that was right. that was associated with the tent of meeting. Well, right? and you weren't supposed to be able to look on God's face. Right. So this idea that God is that, yeah, they're in the presence too. of God, right? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. 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 Um, so um, it, the cloud, the cloud we know covers up their sight. So they 
can't see anymore. I mean, mm-hmm. that, so, but they can hear. So yep. what happens now? Uh, it, it, the, the transfiguration does go from an event of seeing to an event of hearing. And so Luke says in verse 35, then from the cloud came a voice that said, this is my son, my chosen, listen to him. Now, here, obviously, the voice from the cloud endorses Jesus before Peter, James, and John. And again, this detail is found in all three synoptic gospels. But in Matthew and Mark, Jesus is called the beloved, Mm -hmm. the agapetos, whereas in Luke, Jesus is called the chosen one, Mm -hmm. ha-eklelegmenos. And it's the only place in the New Testament where the um, a part of this perfect passive participle of eklego is used in this way. This elsewhere, is yeah. yeah, elsewhere the adjective eklektos is used. Ugh. Um, and in fact, uh, the version of the voice at the transfiguration in Matthew's gospel exactly repeats the voice at Jesus' baptism. This is my son, the beloved in whom I am well pleased. Mm-hmm. Uh, Mark has something similar, but uh, we saw last year, it's you are my beloved son mm-hmm. um, and not this is. But um, uh, both versions of the voice add to the interesting study of titles for Jesus in the Gospels. Here, Jesus is identified clearly as God's Son. He's identified as the servant of the Lord, and and that comes from the the interesting choice of eklelegmenos, uh, or the chosen one. Uh, That language of choosing echoes Isaiah 42.1. Here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen, whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. I will bring Mm. forth justice to the nation. He will bring forth justice to the nations. And then finally, Jesus is identified here as the prophet like Moses, implicitly through the command to listen to him or Mm -hmm. hear him. And again, as I mentioned before, Moses himself in Deuteronomy 18.15 had told the people, that after he was gone, God would raise up a prophet like him, and they were to listen to him. Um, and in Acts chapter 3, we're going to see, uh, I believe it's Peter alluding to the, quoting those pas- that passage from uh, Deuteronomy 18 and, and speaking of Jesus as the uh, prophet like Moses, whom God has raised up to oh, speak to the people. Yeah. yeah. So this three, there's a, there's a threefold identification here. Right. He's God's son. He's the servant of the Lord who carries out God's um, right. God's mission of release, and he's the prophet like Moses who speaks God's word authoritatively. So it's really much more than just this idea of oh, well, this is where we really the, the disciples see definitively the son of God. I mean, this yes. is a much <laughs> this 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 identity piece is much more loaded than yes. That. <laughs> it's not just a matter of well. This this is this is Jesus who is divine and human. Right. The the the, the combination of titles and illusions I think uh, provide us with a, a fairly um, complex and rich affirmation of Jesus' identity in terms of his role and what he's going to do in terms of the mission he's going to fulfill. He is the prophet like Moses who is overshadowed by the cloud of God's presence on the mountain. Right. I mean that's what happens at the transfiguration, and whom God commands His people to hear. Uh, he is associated with Elijah and Elisha, who, who and both of those those figures together represent the next high point in prophecy in the Hebrew Bible. Both by his own teaching at Nazareth, right? He mm-hmm. cites the allusions to the events from their their ministries, and by Elijah's presence at the transfiguration. But note, he is not Elijah, and that's something that many had speculated. When 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 you have the question of who do you say I am, or when you have Herod um, mm-hmm. uh, trying to say, you know this is John the Baptist or Elijah, one of the prophets. This is part of the speculation around who Jesus is. I think what Peter uh, or what Luke 
is trying to make clear at the with his account of the transfiguration is that no Elijah was somebody else. Elijah was here, but now he's gone. Uh, yes, yes, <laughs> and yes. and uh, Jesus is is somebody else. He is right. he is the he is the prophet like Moses. He is um, he is the, he has been acknowledged as the Christ by Peter. Earlier on in this chapter, mm-hmm. although it's doubtful that Peter understood the fullness of that affirmation, because as I said, he calls Jesus Master here as opposed to Christ or Lord. Mm-hmm. More than that, Jesus himself affirmed that he was the one anointed by the Spirit of the Lord to to fulfill the role of the servant of, of the Lord to bring the year of the Lord's favor or the kingdom of God. And then, of course, here the voice of God confirms that Jesus is God's Son, the chosen servant to accomplish mm-hmm. God's purposes purposes. So the transfiguration in Luke's gospel is this just major event in disclosing Jesus' true identity in terms of his his role and his mission, though it's clear, I think, that the disciples did not understand it. Right, right. And I'm thinking about the readers. I'm not sure, do the readers understand it? Well, uh, Probably. I think probably so. I think Luke's community would have because, and that gets us into the next point, um, uh, really, is that, you know, at the conclusion of the story, Luke tells us that when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone, and they kept silent, and in those days told no one any of the things they had seen. Mm -hmm. Now, in Matthew and Mark... Jesus specifically commands them, instructs them not to say anything. Right. But here, the simple statement that they were silent, I think also contributes to Luke's presentation of the disciples' lack of understanding. Right. And this will come up again in Luke. Now, remember, you know, we did this, we did this thing on, on the resurrection appearances in Luke's gospel. In Luke's gospel, it takes not only witnessing Jesus' death on the cross, and it takes not only witnessing the post-resurrection appearances of Jesus to the disciples, but rather it takes an act of speech. It takes the word of Jesus. It takes Jesus' act of opening their minds to understand his true, to understand the Mm -hmm. scriptures in order to understand his true identity and purpose. Mm -hmm. Now, so would the readers have understood that? I would say yes, very likely so, because Luke was writing long after right, right. those events, right? And right. so you had that tradition. That I, I used to, I used to, uh, um, I used to. I've said this before. I think I used to ask my 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 students in the seminary if they would prefer a, a, a full live three D color video of Jesus' ministry or the Gospels, because the Gospels really give us the cheat sheet. They give us the answer clue. Mm-hmm to the significant questions that a lot of people who saw Jesus' ministry firsthand live missed. Right. Of course, yeah. And yeah. so so by the time we get to Luke's composition of the gospel, you know, the, 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 the Christian community has had decades of this tradition right. of understanding who Jesus is and what his mission was. Now, whether or not they they had the fullness of Luke's particular presentation of it is another question, and of course that's why that's why Luke writes his gospel is because he, you know I think he sees some themes that need to be emphasized. Right? Yeah, it totally makes sense. Well, Ellen, I do you have anything else you'd like to add? No, no. I'm I'm I'm. I'm excited to get telling you about the reformers and how they looked at this passage. Sounds good. Thanks. Thanks.
Hi, friends. We're back, and we're going to let Christy take a turn with the Reformers. Uh, fair warning, the church kind of took a detour when it comes to the Transfiguration. So, um, uh, unfortunately, the Reformers didn't quite find their way out of that. But uh, she's going to clue us in as to how the Reformers did treat this passage. Right. So they obviously talk about this passage. But I, when I started looking through oh, various um, various things, you know, like the Institutes, or I went into the confessions, and they are simply not citing this passage to support any of their main theological points, which I found kind of interesting. So it's it kind of takes a back seat. And I think when we think about the Reformation as a whole, we can probably guess why, because I think they think this supports like overemphasizes Christ's divinity. Yeah. And and that's that's the detour that the church made early on, back right. in the second century even. They took the transfiguration as exclusively pointing to Jesus' divinity. Exactly. And, of course, we have reformers that are, are wanting to emphasize his humanity. Mm-hmm. Um, now, I don't want to say more. They wouldn't say that in, as, a, as a theological piece, but... Um, juxtaposed to the overemphasis on divinity right. through the Roman Catholic tradition. Well, we talked about that in a previous episode. You know, where the overemphasis on the divinity sort of made it out like our, you know, our, Jesus is this heavenly figure that we can't even possibly strive to exactly. attain. You know, exactly. and 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 yet, and the, the reformers are wanting to show us uh, Jesus in his ministry as an right. example for our discipleship. Exactly, exactly. So I think that's partly why we just don't see as much. Nonetheless, of course, Calvin treated it in um, um, in his commentaries, as well as then I have the Reformation commentaries that had some other other voices. So, the the two themes that I'm going to pull out um, are Christ's divinity, number one, and then God's authority um, is the other one. Um, and so, um, Calvin obviously does say this look this affirms christ's divinity and it was important as god acknowledged christ's divinity in front of the disciples um so it was more than a baptism occurrence um but showing that and this is an interesting piece that christ had the power to refuse death and not follow god's plan so this was that time when it's it like affirmed christ's Freedom of will or freedom of choice? I want to say choice for God. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> right. But, um, and I think that's that's an interesting space there, particularly from Calvin, right? When mm-hmm. we think of him as um, as the predestination guy, that, God, that but he still gives this full humanity to Christ and that Christ would have had the choice mm-hmm. not wow. to be on the mountain and not to be in this situation. And I have to say, I, I, I you know, I get the hypothetical, the, the point of the hypothetical statement here. I, I, to me, I have to say Jesus, the son, you know, the son of God, the chosen one, the servant of the Lord, uh, the prophet like Moses, uh, the, 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 the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, the one who is going to give his life and be exalted in the resurrection and at the ascension. I can't see that. I just can't see him being true to himself it, and, and choosing to refuse death and not follow God's Well, and of course he doesn't. So right. maybe that in it. Yeah. And it's self-suggestive. It's an interesting thing. I think what what Calvin wants us to know that it is of Christ emptying Himself, mm-hmm. and He uses that terminology, mm-hmm. um, which is borrowed from Philippians too. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. And and He wants us to to realize that there's this human Christ has this agency yes. that 
that could be could be used. He has yeah, agency. well, and I, I, I yeah. can affirm that. You know, well, we saw that in John's gospel. You know, Jesus right. himself says, I right. have the choice. I have the authority to choose to do this. Right, and I have the yeah, authority. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so that's, that's yeah. I think, what he's after. So very interesting. Yeah. And then, of course, the white garments were, were to show... Yeah. Um, a glimpse of what they could not understand. Again, that's part of that divinity, and I and I'm so intrigued with you know we had this great discussion of the of the whiteness of it. But um, what struck me about it is just that we fully can't understand exactly mm-hmm. what that looks like, and we mm-hmm. talk about that a lot with the, the the whiteness and the light. Well, and I think that's why Mark you know, adds that elaboration, you know, his clothes were white such that no launderer on earth could make them white. And, right. and, and uh, Matthew says his face shone like the sun, you know, mm-hmm. those, those kind of metaphors are an attempt to try to express what is beyond words. Right. Right. And then another aspect comes when, um, uh, when they delve into the discussion of Moses and Elijah and Reformation folks believe that Moses and Elijah were, were there, were pre- physically present. We talked about that. Yeah. Um, and Calvin says because God had the power to do it. That was the reason he right, gave. Right. Okay. <laughs> so again, and that kind of Luke supports. doesn't explain it. He just he just says it. Yeah, exactly. Um, and um, they're there according to Calvin because they are signs and symbols of God's interactions with God's people. That's an interesting point, mm-hmm. actually, mm-hmm. because I mean that's kind of what I said basically. Right. Right. Moses, Moses represented the law yeah. and how humans were to act in relationship to God, and Elijah, the greatest of the prophets. Um, who communicated to the people. Um, and, and, you know, the message of the prophets was return to the covenant. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So, you so know, they weren't back. on different pages, yeah, right? It, it points back. <laughs> but with Christ present with them, this marked an end to the prophets. In other words, this was a kind of the last word of God with Christ. So, and then the only other piece I have under this, um, you know, Calvin did, comment on on peter's building of tabernacles saying look peter and and the disciples just didn't understand what they were seeing yet Mm, um but that he wanted desperately to preserve that space Mm -hmm. so and we talked about that 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 makes sense of maybe why he 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 blurted that out it's like can i can i keep this here um i did know that at least in what i was looking at there was not that connection between um, this and then that the, the later space, um, 38 to 43 at the end, oh, with the, right. dr- driving out the demon. But I wanted to point that out here because um, um, I think I think that I think it, I think there's a there's a development there in this sense of this fear of being separate from Christ. Is it has it, it they haven't kind of comprehended that the christ oh, will right. die yeah they when they come down stay from, there with him right when they come down from the mountain they encounter this this young man who's troubled and 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 um you know jesus sort of chides them for mm-hmm. for not being able to mm-hmm. to handle it on their own right yeah right so i pulled out and i'm going to go into my other space in a minute when i look at the text but i, I pulled out a couple of images because this has got a very traditional drawing uh, imagery since the Middle Ages, and it moves all the way through the Reformation, where you've got this divine Jesus and his glowingness about him, and then uh, Moses and Elijah, both that are accompanied by um, Moses by the, the Ten Commandments that he has in his hands, and, and Elijah in prayer on his knees. Both of these make sense. People would I- be able to identify with the story. And then, of course, the three disciples, the you know, looking terrified. And 
so that's but, but at the same time the 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 quotation is lord it is good for because, us to be here yes yes it has that in there so they don't look very happy look, to be there they look kind of terrified right yeah 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 and um then but once you get to Raphael, who's a later and i think this is shows you kind of the development um and even the development of exegesis you get the same the same at the top of the image this is very famous in one if you want to google it, it uh, Raphael's transfiguration you get this beautiful tr- traditional look you've got Jesus and surrounded in the white and, and it, it looks like Jesus is not only transfigured but he's also almost ascending he's flo- yeah he's floating <laughs> he's floating <laughs> as are Moses and Elijah right and Moses and Elijah and the three disciples then same same thing you got the cl- the cloud is a little bit clear maybe in it Mm -hmm. it's in the other one too but then you get that later scene attached to it with um that i just mentioned where you've got the the boy with the with the seizures and you've got the the disciples around and they're they're kind of pointing to god above but god isn't there to save it and it it points to that next scene and Mm -hmm. i i just think that that shows this kind of this kind of development um in, in how the, and maybe this idea that Luke is writing this broader picture and he's actually belonged together. Yeah, I doubt that Raphael had the understanding of Luke's gospel and Luke's theology that, that we do today because of the work of, of a lot of New Testament scholars, right? Right. But sort of maybe instinctively, he's seen the connection between this um, uh, amazing, overwhelming demonstration of, of Christ's identity and role, but the connection of that with his mission. Because you know it's connected with what's right. happening on right. earth and and with the need for release and and uh, redemption uh, among the people as right. as embodied in this young man. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. pretty so fascinating. I think it's pretty cool. Yeah, very cool. And so that leads me back to our our, our scripture um, today in, in Calvin's commentaries is that the other main theme is God's authority, and um, this is God's claim on Jesus, um, God coming in the cloud and. So this is really interesting because the first one, the divinity of Christ, and even this agency, but yet God's authority at the same time. And mm. Luther will tie this all in even better. But again, remember Calvin's kind of going line by line. So for example, for Calvin, the space of the cloud was to shield the disciples from God the Almighty. It was a way to remind them that they were mortal and not able to fully see God's greatness. Um, they were not allowed to have this experience beyond their capacity, Beyond their yeah. capacity yeah. right? Mm-hmm. So the voice, um, the, the voice of God is what they get to experience, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and um, it reminds us. And this was Calvin's that we enter God's presence by faith alone. Mm. So again, emphasizing that Reformation theme. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the important about this in terms of Reformation theology is the idea that no human being gets to be in conversation with God above anyone else. We already mentioned that. This is that kind of sense that yeah, God is. God is God. We mm-hmm. only know God through Jesus. Mm-hmm. And we know only, only know it because Jesus has fully emptied himself to allow us to, right. to know him. Right. So it's all of these, these pieces together. And then I think you're seeing the last thing is like, and where's the Holy Spirit? And it's Luther that's going to tie in this idea mm. that this is indeed an example of the Trinity working together. The cloud represents the cloud the is spirit. The spirit. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Just as with the baptism, right? Uh-huh. I think he had that same, uh-huh. same Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so yeah. The, the agency of the Trinity. And this is important because as you're getting into Reformation era thinkers, all of the heresies, 
<laughs> renew themselves, yeah. and uh, we get a whole new um, a whole new group of anti trinitarians. So sure. Luther is saying, "Look, this is this is clearly the agency of God in." Well, and you know I, that makes sense because that's where that's where the church's handling of the transfiguration took a detour in the first place was the trinitarian controversies and the christological mm-hmm. controversies in the early church. Right, and right, they, they, right. They saw this passage as applying to the incarnation. They they saw it pointing backwards to the incarnation, whereas in in Luke's gospel, it's clearly not doing that. It's pointing forward. For, forward, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. So interesting. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, and well, I think it highlights that we all tend to engage in our exegesis and understanding of the Bible in our own given context. And, and it's hard for us, perhaps even to be fully aware of how much our given context shapes our understanding of Scripture. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And that's maybe something we, maybe something we could touch on later um, in our conversation. And I think also in this, too, as I said, they're, they're really trying to make sure they're really trying to make sure that this has this this fully trinitarian sense and this idea of of Jesus um, humanity still coming in they, and mm-hmm. so one of the things they point out which I thought was interesting is you know why those three disciples and of course in the Roman Catholic tradition that Peter's there obviously right. alludes to that Peter's going to be the first pope and gives you know this kind of um, hierarchy to the Roman Catholic tradition where <laughs> whereas here they're saying look those are the three that went up. That's they're just representative. Mm, yeah, it, there's nothing particularly unique and special. Well, which and I, I don't know if it's fair, but well, I would say, you know, historically speaking, they became the inner circle. Mm-hmm. But I think it's fair to say that their role was that of representative of the other disciples in in the gospels. The way they function, the way they play their role of of the inner circle in the gospels, they sort of represent the other disciples. Yeah. So I think that's a fair it, statement. But yeah. you know, it certainly was. It certainly was important for them to point this out within mm-hmm. the context of this you yeah. know, claim of Peter. You don't which, have any hierarchy among the apostles, right? Well, <laughs> yeah. and as we point out. Peter still doesn't understand. Right. I mean, it's it's right. not like he suddenly is is realized that he's at a higher place. In right. fact, he's still showing himself not to get it. Yep. Um, so again, um, it's it's really this. I think this whole sense of God's authority and Christ's divinity that are are the main pieces that, that Calvin's going to point out. Um, and as Calvin points out, the only way we know God is through Christ's revelation. We don't have Jesus. Our only knowledge mm. of God would, would, would be kind of superficial. Right. No, that's a, um, that's a clear Reformation theme, right? right. Is that we cannot right. know God in a saving way without revelation. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Um, so um, he says, look, the, all of these things point to that this passage is necessary for us to understand who Jesus is. Mm-hmm. And that's how we then, as as disciples ourselves, that's how we will come to understand who Jesus is. That this is central for that reason. So he goes beyond um, into those spaces. Oh, and then finally, the ultimate thing that Calvin wanted to emphasize is the love in Christ. Um, as Christ is God 
is Christ is God himself. Mm-hmm. So there's this this re- mm-hmm. reciprocity that's that's going on. It's super important oh, yeah. for us to understand. Well, kind of like at the baptism, right? I mean, that yep. was something that was yep. brought, brought out yep. there, right? That yep. You see, you see the Spirit. You see, you see the Father. You see the Son. And there's this uh, there's this um, circle of love, so to speak. Right. Right. So uh, you know, that's really all I have today. But to come to come at this is what the what the reformers did take away God's um, God's authority, Christ's divinity, um, and the the acting of the Trinity, mm-hmm. the um, um, uh, all together. That this is, and so this is an important for those reasons. Sure. Thanks, yeah. Christine. Thanks. Hi, everybody. We are back. And as we got thinking about this passage and, and what it means and what the whole transfiguration means, and I think, you know, I guess maybe I, I'm guilty, some, is that I tend to think of this as this divine Christ, like like these images that you see with the Christ with the bright halo around. And yet, as we talked about, I'm not sure that's what Luke was getting after it when he put this together. So, Alan, why don't you um, just... Talk about what your thoughts are. Thanks, Christy. Yeah. Um, You know, um, one one of the things that I just love about Luke and Acts is the way Luke just constantly and consistently weaves the story of Jesus and the story of the early church into the broader narrative, the big story of God's redemptive work going all the way back. And we've seen it already, you know, with Mary's Magnificat echoing Hannah's song. We've seen it Mm -hmm. with Jesus' Mm -hmm. um, uh, interaction with the folks at Nazareth around Isaiah 61 and the servant of the Lord. And, you know, there's just so many ways that um, Luke um, is... You know, as I've said before, it's almost as if Luke had a copy of the Septuagint sitting right. before him and he could read it. You know, I, I, it's hard for me to understand or to fathom how he had such um, either Luke or his right. source, how they had such detailed knowledge of the Septuagint, mm-hmm. even to the point at times of quoting, you know, word for word, the Septuagint. It's hard for me to to to, to understand how that came about, mm-hmm. um, but um, clearly Luke is weaving themes from the Septuagint, from the Hebrew Bible, into his presentation of the Transfiguration. I mean, the other the other thing that really comes to my mind here is that. Um, uh, unfortunately, uh, the early church in the se- beginning with the second century, as a result of the of the uh, Trinitarian and Christological controversies, took a backwards turn with the Transfiguration and saw it as pointing back to the Incarnation and as proof of Jesus' divine nature. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, uh, that's really not the point in Luke's Gospel. And, you know, as we said right. earlier, it points right. forward to the cross. It points mm-hmm. forward to the resurrection. It points forward to the well, ascension, and it points forward to the parousia uh, in glory and honestly when we look at this verse afterwards that we didn't do it points towards 
it points towards, towards the ministry. The ministry. Yeah. Uh-huh. And, and again, here, I'm just marveling at the way, you know, Luke has just woven his his work together as this tapestry of, of, of threads that point us back to um, the, 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 the Septuagint because the whole point is um, th- this ministry of release. You know, mm-hmm. I, I've used the word aphesis, but mm-hmm. I mean, it's mm-hmm. the ministry of release. And that both, both refers to salvation in a spiritual sense and so redemption from physical problems like this boy's seizure malady mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. poverty and hunger, any well, kind yeah, of oppression. Luke doesn't allow us to um, pass off being Christians who are involved in the world and, and taking care no, of that's people. Right. And, well, and, and, and I mean, that's the whole point then of, of the transfiguration exactly. is, is to affirm Jesus identity in terms of his mission and what he's going exactly. to accomplish. I mean, that's a big deal. I, it, it reminds me of, it reminds me of the age old question of what would Jesus drive? You know, mm. well, Jesus wouldn't drive anything because Jesus has moved on. <laughs> no, Luke makes this pretty clear that Jesus is right here. Yes, indeed. And, and yes, has indeed. high expectations for our, our, our ministry as, sure. as followers. Well, and, and, the, and, the, and the phrases that are used by the heavenly voice this is my son, the chosen one, mm-hmm. um, hear him. You know, mm-hmm. those are those are huge in in the in resonances with the Septuagint. You know, um, um, this is my son is a resonance from the Messianic theme, um, Psalm two seven or right. or Second uh, Samuel mm-hmm. chapter seven, where where you know the original sort of Messianic passage um, that is quoted in the New Testament a number of times. This sort of reflects that. Mm-hmm. So so again, we have this idea of Jesus as as the messianic agent of the kingdom. That's really the po- the, fo- the focus here. He's the one who's going to, as he already announced, bring in the year of the Lord's favor. Mm-hmm. But then he's the eklelegmenos. He is the eklelegmenos. He is the chosen one. He is the one who has been chosen by God. Mm-hmm. And this echoes, I mean... In the Septuagint of Isaiah 41, too, where it talks about the servant as being chosen, mm-hmm. it uses the adjective eklektos, right? Mm-hmm. But we've seen in the New Testament that's kind of the normal language. Luke departs from that here, but it's the same thing. I mean, he's pointing out this idea of Jesus as being the chosen, the one chosen mm-hmm. to fulfill the role of the servant of the Lord as spelled out in Second yep. Isaiah. And, of course, obviously he quotes from one of the major right. passages right. of that in Isaiah 61, uh, bringing um, relief and the year of the Lord's favor. So that's the second aspect of it. And then the whole idea, I mean, just the, just the setting with Moses and Elijah, you know, calls to mind um, Moses' prediction of a prophet like me who will come and who will speak to you and you're to hear him. And um, as I said before, in Acts, in Acts chapter 3, I believe it's Peter who, who refers to that uh, that prediction of Moses and points it to Jesus as the one who fulfills it. Well, here Luke does that simply by saying, simply by having Moses appear, right? Right, right. Uh, and, and talk about his mission of Exodus, uh, which may also connect with Second Isaiah and the new work that God mm-hmm, is going to do mm-hmm. that's going to make the old things look like mm-hmm. uh, they were no big deal. Um, but more than that, just, just by the fact that the voice says, hear him. You know, that is a, I think yeah, that's a, yeah. it's a definite allusion to that original 
uh, statement on Moses' part, the Lord is going to send a prophet like me. Right. You are to listen to this right. person. You know, you are to hear this. You know, I, I, as you've been talking and my brain has been thinking about hear, hear. And I think, what does that mean to hear? You know, and I think sometimes we think, oh, we hear it. But if we doesn't cause any response, we haven't really heard it, right? Right. <laughs> right. You know, um, so hearing isn't, isn't a passive kind of thing. Hearing also kind of has action attached to it. Yes. Um, yes. Which, you know, I haven't, I haven't done a, a word study on here um, or, but, but it seems to me that that's always, it, look, when you hear it, that means you're supposed to be acting on it as yeah. well. Yeah. Well, and really already, a- already in the previous context, you know, Jesus, Peter has confessed Jesus to be the Christ of God. And Jesus has said, the son of man is going to die. Mm-hmm. And then he goes on to say, if you would follow me, you too must die. Mm-hmm. And I think that's something that they could not hear. They could not right, hear right. that Jesus must die, and they could not hear that that was their path as well. And yet here, I think part of what's going on with this affirmation of Jesus' role is that as the son of God, as the chosen one, as the prophet like Moses, it is Jesus' role to take on the mission of bringing the kingdom of God and bringing release, but that path is going to lead him to the cross, mm-hmm. to the resurrection, to the ascension, and then ultimately to his coming in power. And and so then part of hearing this is, first of all, understanding, okay, Jesus mm-hmm. isn't going to be fulfilling the typical role that I may be expecting of him. He's going to be fulfilling a different role. And you know what? His way of carrying out the mission of bringing the year of the Lord's favor is setting the example for me as to how I follow him in discipleship in working to bring about the release Mm -hmm. of the year of the Lord's favor in our day and time. And, And of course, Peter couldn't hear either any any part of that at that point, right? But um, and neither could the other disciples. And I think I'm afraid in in our setting we can't hear that. We you know we we're we're so used to hearing about Jesus going to the cross that that doesn't phase us. But we don't you know we don't really understand that his ministry of release was carried out through what he sacrificed on the cross and that our ministry of release is going to be carried out right. through how we sacrifice right, for the sake right, of others. Right. We can't hear we that can't because hear we that. think of following God as being this way of, well, you know, God's going to bless us and he's going to bless us right. and he's just going to bless us and bless us all over the place. Right, right, right. <laughs> and, 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 you know, part of what I think is going on here is that Luke is trying to reinforce this notion to, uh, that the apostles just missed the fact well, that their, their mission was going to be one of suffering as well. Well, and there's something really, I, I really like about this as we're talking about our response because the disciples who we hold up very highly and um, we're reminded of how human they are in this. I mean, you know, as I'm thinking of, oh, I hear selectively. Um, so did they. They yeah. heard selectively. They couldn't understand. And I, 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 I guess it gives me, I guess there's just this reminder of, of grace. Mm-hmm. And this is reminder of even when we're working with our congregations of patience, sure, sure. Um, of willingness to continue to put out stuff they may not hear. It may take 
hearing yeah. many, many times it does before indeed. they hear. It does. Um, it does. It may be catching them at, at the right space. You know, maybe maybe it's after they've had that mountaintop moment and they realize they can't build the little <laughs> the little tabernacles for right, right. you know whatever to that stay is on the mountain. Yeah, to right. stay on the mountain yeah. whatever it is um it's, uh, there's this there's this kind of wonderful silver lining about this just for us i think well and yet at the same time we have, can't forget that um um peter and and some of the others they went on to give up yes, their lives, they did. They did in, in their in their following Christ, yes, in did. their service to the church. Mm-hmm. And who of us wants to give up our lives in our service to the kingdom of God? Right. I mean, we we don't envision that, and yet um, that's still the call. I think for all of us, not just in ministry, but also in in as as follow, all followers of Christ, we are called right. to sacrifice our lives for the sake right. of the release right. that God wants to bring into this world. Right. And, and, you know, you're talking about this, and I think about this a lot, because obviously, you know, in the early church, of course, that was, we have to die. Yes, we indeed. have to die yes, a horrible indeed. death. Right. Um, martyrdom. The whole martyrdom tradition. Yeah. And, um, you know, really until it became an official language in the Roman Empire, the martyrdom mentality was was really there i I mean we started to have the beginnings and then a monastic movement so this is so removed from kind of our space today but still Mm -hmm. where are we sacrificing you know to serve and i i think that's a big question and um it's um yeah i think it's those little battles sometimes you have with yourself Mm. day day to day you know (laughs) sure um am i you know am i going to serve someone else am i gonna and i'm gonna look at someone else's is pain and need instead of my own, which is <laughs> which is totally contrary to what our culture exactly. is oriented around. Our people, we who live in this culture, we are we are taught to that that you know um, you know I matter and and I should I should pay attention to myself mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. you know there's some wisdom to that, but you know not right. to the extent of forgetting that we have to we have to step outside of ourselves and we have to find right. a way right. to you know as as Jesus will say you know I I'm I have to die and and so you have to give up your life as well if you're going to follow me you know I just got a new book um that reminds me of this a little bit. I, I listened to this um, on um, NPR the other day, um, this book, How Rights Went Wrong, Our Obsession with Rights is Tearing America Apart, but um, by Jamal Green. And this book was really interesting because it talked about how we are so concerned about protecting our own rights, but mm-hmm. we have to remember our rights, our rights will might offend someone else's right. Mm-hmm. So, you know, for example, it's my right to smoke, Maybe, but someone else, it's maybe their right not to have smoke in their face. Right. So that this, and it's such an interesting space that we've gotten ourselves into because it's all defined by the individual um, and the individual said rights without considering the other person. And so there has to be this balancing act. And I really think that's how we're called as Christians. And and kind of part of that sacrifice that we're after here is sacrificing that sense of my personal right um, for the good of the body, you know, and for the body of Christ. And if we think about it in that terminology, then we stop thinking so singly about ourselves. Um, And we sometimes talk about protecting the rights of others, which is, Mm -hmm. which is good, Mm -hmm. 
but we have to remember rights of others within the context of of the body. So yeah. it's this interesting space. And, and anyway, this book reminded me of that. Back in you know back in the day, and I'm I'm thinking back in the '60s. You know, um, so I'm dating myself here. But you know, the the part of part of the rhetoric of of um, cultural dialogue in this country was that rights are balanced by responsibility mm-hmm, mm-hmm. that we have rights but we also have responsibilities right, right. and it's that responsibility aspect that we have just kind of totally let go e- of exactly we have exactly. no sense that we are responsible for one another we're like we're like Cain and you know in yeah. Genesis am I my brother's keeper <laughs> yes yes <laughs> and and we are and and by the way we've blown it on that and it, it's you know long past time that we wake up and come back back and realize that you know that's the that's that's the role that's the example that Jesus set for exactly. us that's the role that Jesus fulfilled exactly and it wasn't just sort of a hey you guys sit back you know I've got mm-hmm. this I'll take care of this you guys don't have to do anything I'll do everything that's not it at all in the New Testament mm-hmm. in the New Testament the people of God join in right. with uh, the work of the kingdom you know Paul says something to the effect of in in I believe it's in Colossians chapter 1 he talks about how in his own ministry he's filling up what is lacking in the sufferings of Christ for the sake of the body now there's an idea yeah, that, yeah, you know, exactly. Obviously, I don't think he meant to say that there, that somehow Christ's death was insufficient to um, gain salvation, to you know, to provide salvation for us. He wasn't saying that at all. What he was saying was he was putting his sufferings on the level with Christ's sufferings for the sake of the church. Right. And right. thus he was elevating his own sufferings to say that this is why I'm suffering. I'm suffering for the sake of the church, right. just as Jesus suffered for right. the sake of right. the church. And the idea is that's what we're all called to. It, it, exactly. Exactly. And, <laughs> and, and I would say more broadly than Paul, we're called to suffer for the sake of the world. Not yeah, just for the church. I agree. I agree. And that's that's hard to wrap your brain, really hard to wrap your brain around, you know. And again, I take it back to um, start with those baby steps of mm-hmm. of you know where where you can at least when you're walking into a space, thinking about someone else's mm-hmm. space, think about the other people around you, and yep. um, I think it's you know, and we can. I think it's, you know, we're still in the middle of COVID. We're still in the middle of mask wearing. Um, we're still in the middle of a lot of anger. And so it's always an interesting time to think about how we can be the body of Christ in the midst of this time. Surely. Well, and it has to do, I think, clearly from, from this passage and from the New Testament with serving others and with recognizing we have a responsibility to serve others, mm-hmm. really. Yeah, we do. That's our calling. Yeah. Thanks, Alan. Thank you. That's our podcast for today. If you heard something that was helpful to you, please subscribe to our podcast and tell your friends about us. It's our hope and prayer that our time together might bear fruit in your ministry as you build up the body of Christ. We hope you'll tune in next week. And in the meantime, let's keep serving each other as we together listen listen for for the the word. word.